You can open your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 1, although we won't spend a whole lot of time in that specific text necessarily. You can probably tell from my prayer time that uh, there's, been, uh, there's been some angst in my study this week and just in my own personal life and preparing for this week. And uh, I want to take opportunity this morning to pause before we go on in the text of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is so incredible, it's so fantastic, it's so amazing as it lays out for us the reality of of, of restora- the re- reality of the need for restoration, for rebuilding, for, uh, for some kind of, uh, for the Lord to come and restore things in our lives. And in fact, not only does it, does it lay out that reality of that, but it also lays out some steps on how they did it back then, which provides some parallels for us today. But I, I, I want to be upfront with you, I want to be honest with you, uh, though there's great value in studying the book of Nehemiah just for the purpose of studying the book of Nehemiah and finding historical value and even finding some spiritual principles we can pull out and say, oh, those are, those are nice things. Uh, my overarching attempt or aim or goal is that we do far more than that, that we take, uh, there's a phrase we have that, that, that uh, I don't think any of us really want to do, actually, uh, in real life, but uh, that we take the bull by the horns and we say, we're going to deal with this. We're going we're gonna to look square in the face of what God may be saying through his Holy Spirit to us today. And as we read about how Nehemiah traveled back from, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from uh, those in, in exile and came to rebuild the wall and came to rebuild uh, the, 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 sort of the shape of the city, the identity of the city of Jerusalem, and, and he struggled with that and they, there was opposition and they fought through that, that we... At the same time as we learn about that, we say, God, we have to have you do a similar work in us here today. I don't know how you feel about things. I don't know whether you're full of optimism, where we're at as a, as a, as a nation or as a church broadly and as a church here at Riverview or as a family, or where you're at personally yourself, whether you're, you're broadly optimistic or whether you're really pessimistic or somewhere in between. But there's a real sense for me that there's, there's a need for, and I, wanna, I, I use this word because it's a word that, that has historical context for us as, as Anabaptists. Many of you, probably not all of us, but many of us are Anabaptists. Uh, there's a need for some reformation, some reforming of things. There's a need to say we have been moving along, and I don't think that any, I don't want to, I don't think that any of us have any intent to walk away from the Lord or to do things, you know, not according to his word or to stray or to be left in this sort of lukewarm or halfway in between position of serving God and not, none of us want to be there. None of us intend to be there. I don't, I don't that's not our intention. That's, I would say, largely not the intention of the broader American church even. But the reality is, I think if we are willing to look around, that's where we find ourselves. This morning, my message, I, wanna, I, I gave us sort of the different levels of application. This morning, my message um, will be largely geared towards the church. Now, some of it, like in a general sense, the church, I'm going to say the Western church, the American church. I can't assume to speak for any other church around the world because I'm not part of it. I don't know it well enough 
Sometimes we can look at that and say, oh, they're doing really well and they're making us look really bad. I would suggest to us that they have their own set of struggles they have to fight with that uh, may not be the exact same things we have, but they're nonetheless, they're human, right? They're just like we are uh, in, in some respects. So some of it will be broadly uh, to the church. Some of it will be directly to our church here, Riverview. And I hope that's okay. I want you to understand, I think you'll know this. I want you to understand that uh, I'm your pastor. So at some level, anything I pick on to say, we're not doing very good at this, uh, is a reflection on me. Because I'm your leader, I'm your pastor. So if we're not doing very well in it, then I have a large responsibility in that, right? So I want you to know that up front. I consider myself part of the body here. So um, some of the things I will say, and it, this is often true, by the way, but some of the things I will say uh, are really stepping on my own toes. Now, there'll be room, and I'm assuming, and I can leave most of this up to the Holy Spirit, I think. There'll be room to apply a lot of what we're talking about to the family level, if you want. You can look at your own family and say, how does this fit? Is this true in my family? Are these places where I have broken down walls? And there'll be room for you to apply it, uh, personally speaking. I don't think it's a stretch to say a lot of these things, we're going we're gonna to realize this really big problem for us in our country. Again, that's one, not one I'm really going to spend a lot of time with. We ended with these words last week. I'm just going to put the phrase, the verse up there. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. He gets a report back from someone who came from Jerusalem. He says, how is it going with those exiles? And here's the answer. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. So those are the verses we really, the words we really keyed in on. They're in great trouble and shame. And the reason is, or the evidence of that is, whichever way you want to look at that, they're both true. The reason is, the evidence of that is that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. And I touched on this last week and this week, the entire message is based on this. For us to pull this into our time today and to say, where can we look at that we have broken down walls? Where can we see that we have burned up gates? And in that, it is causing us great trouble and shame. So I guess if you are here this morning and you're saying there is no trouble, there is no shame that we're facing as a church here at Riverview or broadly in America or as a family, if you're saying there's none of that here, I guess you can get up and leave if you want or you can check out or you can say, well, everything he has to say doesn't really matter to me. I'm hoping, I'm assuming that you're not in that position because I would tend to look around and say, there are some places that really, really concern me, that we really have some trouble and shame, and it's because of broken down walls. Now, just a quick reminder, last week again, what's the purpose of a wall? We covered this. Why do we even have walls? We often like to pretend there are no walls. We like to wish there were no walls, nothing there. And we talked about the fact that walls provide restrictions, right? They provide, when you're inside the wall, you can't go out. That's good. You may not think that, but that's good. And when you're outside the wall, the wall provides protection for those inside. You can't come back inside. Both of those are true. Walls provide restrictions. Walls provide protections. But I got us to the end last week where I said, I really want us to think about the fact that walls really provide identity. That's really the root issue we're struggling with. They provide identity. The problem for these Jews was they had lost their identity. Now, you might say, well, they lost their identity because they were taken and scattered across the world. I would tell you that was an effect, not a cause. See what I'm saying? They were scattered physically across the globe, the known world at that time. They were scattered and they lost their identity because of that. But that was an effect, not a cause. In other words, they had already lost their identity before that happened physically. 
by doing things like intermarrying with their neighbors and by bringing their Asher poles and, and all the, the, the Baal worship and all the stuff that, by, by mixing their religions together, they had lost their distinct identity as the people of God. That's where we have to begin today. What things have happened? What things are taking place now? What things do we see around us that have made us lose our distinct identity as the people of God, as the church, the bride of Jesus Christ? No doubt, you picked up on a message. I had lots of good conversations with numbers of you this week, and you guys picked up on this. No doubt, this is not a message that we relish going into, right? This is not a feel-good message. This is not a, hey, let's come together at church and pat each other on the back and say, we're doing a great job and go home and feel very encouraged. It's not like that. And I, and I would say I'm sorry, but you already know that when I say sorry, I don't mean it. So I, I'm sorry that it's going to hurt, right? And I told you already, it's gonna, it steps on my toes as much as anybody else's. Thanks to those of you, by the way, who did have some conversation with me this week. Some of that stuff will find its way in this message this morning. Some of it, uh, not necessarily, uh, maybe you'll find touches of it, but... Let's jump in. Looking at what uh, uh, broken pieces are in our wall, we can look at things either that we are allowing in that we ought not, that's the protection piece, or things that we are doing that we should not be, that's the restriction piece, or just some more general basic uh, identity issues. Now, it is, I was going to say virtually, but it might actually be actually, literally, impossible for me to give you a comprehensive list this morning. It's just not possible. And there probably will be things that I missed that you think, oh, that's a really big one. You missed that. And it's, that's entirely fair. I'm trying to, I came up with what I'm trying to give a comprehensive uh, overview of things that are going to have some specifics in them, but an overview of things uh, that, that nail things. So I think this is going to have to be an ongoing discussion, by the way. As we look at things, and we'll get to some things as we go through Nehemiah that, that lend to that. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to that. All right, the very first thing that I want to get to, which I think we have to start here, is because uh, uh, I already get, kind of alluded to this. But as I, was, as I was sitting down to begin to prepare for this message at my desk at home, and I was starting to jot down notes, the Lord took my mind over and over again to the very same passage, which I'm going to read here in just a little bit. The very same passage over and over again. There's a maxim we have, a saying that we have here in our culture today is that everything rises and falls on leadership, right? It's a business maxim, and there's a lot of truth in it, by the way. But uh, I want to begin here because I think if I'm going to be honest about things, if I'm going to be transparent with the rest of you, and we're going to talk about broken places we have broken down walls in our church or in our church here, or in our broader church, or in our families, it's the fact that we, uh, we, we suffer from a leadership problem. I call this greedy shepherds because it's the phrase that comes right out of Ezekiel. This is the passage that my mind went to, and let me just read it for you this morning. If you flip in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34, God speaks through Ezekiel, and he says these things. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and because they became food for all the wild, and they became food for all the wild beasts. 
My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Friends, brothers, and sisters, I think we have to begin with this point right at the very beginning. If we have a problem with the Western church, if we have a problem with our churches, then we must look first and foremost to the leadership of those churches. We must figure out why do we have this problem? Why do we have shepherds that are supposed to be shepherding and leading their churches? And I'm talking to you, which is kind of ironic because there's nothing about to have to do with you. I'm, I'm pointing to myself. Why do we have shepherds that are willing to be fed by the sheep, to be clothed by the sheep, to rest on the laurels of the sheep, to build big kingdoms, to have their own little personal things of, and ways of influence and lots of followers and all kinds of people that tell them how great they, they preach and all the great plans they have, and yet they are not actually taking care of the sheep in any way. It is an awful statement to make, but there are far too many preachers in our churches that don't really care for the sheep at all. that are really interested in having strong-looking sheep to make really big folds, if I can continue using this analogy, strong-looking sheep with really big folds, but they really don't care about the weak ones. They really don't want them there. They really want to kick them aside. They really don't want to worry about planning for them because it takes too much time and effort, and it kind of, kind of budges into their own personal schedule things. I've said this before, and you have to know it. I'm your shepherd, and I'm not perfect. I had more reminders, and I had one really big reminder this week, that I am not perfect. That my flesh still has an opportunity. Every time it can, it wants to rise up, and the old self comes out and wants to do what it wants to do. And I have to make confession and ask for my wife's forgiveness for things like that, and I did this week. And I know I can stand here and look out, and there's people here that I haven't treated right. I don't maybe even know all of these about it. Or maybe you think I don't care about you. Or maybe I don't. Forgive me. There's times when I get selfish and I want to have my time and do what I want to do. And I want to hide away and say, I hope nobody calls me today. And I'm sorry. Because that's being a greedy shepherd. That's being willing to be fed by the sheep and clothed by the sheep and not take care of them. And if we're going to point or talk about anything that's a broken down wall that affects the identity of the church, we have to start at the top with the people standing right back here. I don't take opportunity enough to let you guys, my church people know that I love you. That I'm interested in every one of your condition of your souls and that you make it to heaven. More than anything else, I lose sight of that because I, I live life just like you guys. And I know you guys are, I'm in probably the friendliest audience I can be in. And I'm thankful for that because, boy, if I wouldn't be, this would be a lot, a lot harder even then. I lose sight of that because I live life and I have a family and I'm busy doing things and I'm adding on to my house and whatever, all kinds of stuff going on. But I need to be reminded over and over again that in the end of the day, there's not a person sitting here this morning, and not all of you are here today, but all of you that, that call this place your home that I don't want to see in heaven. 
And I want you to know that. And I want you to forgive me when I'm not showing that, when I'm not demonstrating that. And I want you to be free to come and tell me when I'm de not demonstrating that. I don't want that to be a broken wall here at Riverview. I'm sorry for when it's like that. Greedy shepherds are a big problem. We're going to see they lead to some other things, I think, that, that are why we have other holes and other walls. In our walls, I mean. Let's keep moving. I think a second big, big, big area that we have broken down walls in our churches are what I call biblical illiteracy. And it's maybe not the best choice of words, because it's not that we don't have access to the Word. And it's not even that we don't even read the Word. We read the Word, I think, some. Probably not near as much as we ought to. But, but it's a fundamental not understanding of what the Word of God says. Oh, we know snippets of it. We know verses. And by the way, I can trace this back to greedy shepherds because I can talk to about preachers who only preach about the same things all the time or they have their things they like to talk about or they have their, their specific little section that all, that's, the whole thing is about that and, and, they don't, and we don't take the whole Word of God together. But there's a lack of understanding from behind the pew but also in the pews about what the Bible really teaches. And it opens us up to all kinds of false teaching. It's why we see things all over the board. We've, I mean, we people all over the map on, on terms of what they believe. And they claim to be, and they all say, hey, I'm a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus. I don't know what, and, and I want to be careful because there's a big part of this. You could look at this and say, well, Merlin, you're just looking at it from your perspective. You're just biased. And so you think you have the answer and everybody else is wrong. And I'm sure there's part of that's true, right? I believe what I believe because that's, that's what I've, I've, I've learned from, from in the Word. But I would still say, I can safely say this, there's people all over the place that claim to be Christians that have an alarming lack of knowledge of what the Bible actually teaches. Again, this can go back to greedy shepherds, to, to bad leaders, because it's an alarming amount of times that I listen to other people's sermons and there is very little Scripture in them. How can the church people know the Bible if their preacher for sure won't even tell them what it says? But it's not just the problem up here. I hope you understand that. Because every one of you have a lot more hours of the week spent somewhere else that are not right here. So even if I don't have you open the Bible and read this, you have plenty of opportunity. And I find many times that not to be the case. It opens us up to all kinds of errors that are even addressed in the Word themselves. Now, I'm going to try to do this by telling you the two sides of the ditches so you understand there's place in between. We want to find ourselves in the middle. There's two ditches, and, and there's all kinds of shades of variations in between. When we look at what Paul addressed to the Colossians, let me read these verses to you. Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 16, he says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Excuse me, I need to blow my nose here.
Let's pick up in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed, this is verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. On the one side, in the one ditch, with a lack of good biblical understanding, we have people that think that in order to be saved and be made right, you have to restrict yourself bodily. You have, you have to build those fences we're talking about, the walls we're talking about, so very tight. And, and, and if you look this way on the outside, and you, you know what the word asceticism means? To be an ascetic is to deny yourself all kinds of things. To say, I won't have that, I won't have that, I'll dress poorly, I will, I will uh, not eat, I will, I will starve myself, I will, I will do all kinds of things to show my devotion to God. And as it, this verse points out, you can do those things. They're self-made religion, they're severe to the body, but they have absolutely no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think particularly in our cultural background, for many of us, I grew up Amish, so that's, that's a pretty strong one there. But in our cultural background, this is the ditch we found ourselves in. We have particularly been given to the fact that if I make a whole bunch of rules and make everyone follow them so that we all look like we're, like we're, like we're, really, we're really faithful to God, then we must be. We don't have a good understanding of what the Bible actually teaches, what really takes, changes our desires. It's not making a really tight fence, by the way. I love asking people this question when we do discipleship. If we're talking about temptation, and I say, if you could lock yourself in a room, padded, somehow impervious to all the input from the outside world, would you still face temptation? And I see a few of you shaking your head yes, which is the right answer. Why is that? Where does temptation come from? Temptation, according to Scripture, comes from the evil desires within you. It's not about locking yourself away from everything. It's about recognizing these desires have to die. And there's only one way that happens. And we read about it in here. On the other side, look at what Paul says to the Galatians. I'm just going to pick one verse. I put it up there. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's the other ditch, is that then when we sometimes begin to read some things in here, we say, Ah, oh, Jesus set me free. And to be free means I can do anything I want to. Also not true right? It's where we're left with either a powerless Holy Spirit to change anything in our lives or a what I would call a kingdom now theology that says I have Jesus inside of me and so I can do anything I want. I can command anything I want and make anything happen I want. Both are wrong. Both are an absolute heresy against what the Bible teaches. And there are huge gaping walls in our churches because we don't know the Bible. We don't know what it says. We listen to very convincing sounding people that say, well, you have to do this and this and this. Or, well, you don't have to do anything. You can just do whatever you want. Both are incorrect. Paul spends chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Romans like making this point known. Yes, 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 you were set free in Christ. But yes, 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 all that means is now you can serve him with a glad and clean heart. You can follow his rules. You can do what he wants you to do because you're set free from your other master, which is yourself or Satan or the world or whatever it might be. But you can now serve the other. Can, can, I've, I've, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again this morning. You are never in a place where you do not have a master. Never. 
You always will have a master. Choose this day whom you will serve, is what God said through Moses. In the New Testament, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. The implication is that there is a master. You will serve one and hate the other. Friends, that is a piece that we've borrowed, and we'll get to this maybe in a little bit, but that's a piece that we have borrowed from the culture around us that we can be set free from any kind of requirement or any kind of master. That, we, that freedom means that there's no more, there's no master over us. Last week I was having a conversation with Aaron after the church, and since I opened up with an analogy about sheep and shepherds, it's kind of like the sheep thinking that they're not a sheep anymore that they don't need a shepherd. The problem is every sheep needs a shepherd and you and I don't stop being sheep. Even when we have Christ in us, which we ought to have, it is the hope of glory, we do not stop being sheep. We're still not the shepherd. We still need one. I see I was gonna read a couple more verses here so let me just, uh, let me just get to that. When we read in, first, in 2 Timothy, sorry, not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. When we read in 2 Timothy, we are actually told that this is going to be a problem in our day. Well, it probably was a problem back then too, but it, with increasingly problems. Let's go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's read the first, uh, first five verses there. Paul writes to Timothy this. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And at this point you think I'm talking about all those ungodly worldly people out there. Until he says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. He's not talking about those godless people out there. He's talking about people that are in the church. And I'll tell you that even more because if he keeps skipping down and going to chapter 4, he says in verse 3 of chapter 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the evidence of the broken down wall I'm telling you about. We have leaders that are all too willing to make their, build their own little kingdoms. And we have all kinds of followers, all kinds of sheep who are all too happy to hear what they want to hear. In fact, sometimes refuse to hear anything else but what they want to hear. And you notice there's all kinds of ugly things said about those people. And those are the people that are inside. They're in the church. This is a big wall, isn't it? a big hole in the wall, isn't it? Now, I share this, in this with this point about, about biblical illiteracy because if you look at what I skipped over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I read the first couple of verses and went down to chapter 4. If you look at what I skipped over, it's Paul all about telling Timothy the word of God is breathed out by God's spirit. It's useful for teaching, reproof, correction. And he says, and right after what I read in, verse four, in chapter 4, he says, you should teach the word with all diligence. You should, you should speak the word. He recognizes that the reason that these things are true, the reason you have a list of ugly things like people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and pr proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient, all kinds of stuff, is because they don't know and understand what God's word says. Among which would be just the simple list that says that very sound, same sounding list and saying, don't you know that none of those will be in the kingdom of God or will be in heaven? 
So if you want to be in heaven, those cannot ever find evidence in your life. Those can't be part of your life. Now, if you want to be that way now, I suppose you can. That's your choice. But with an understanding of Scripture, you recognize that you don't have to be that way. By the way, I love the question Paul asked. This is going back to Romans chapter 6, I think, somewhere in there. He says, when he's talking about being a slave, listen carefully. He says, you know, you used to be a mass slave to the sin, but now you can be a slave to righteousness. And he says, in fact, this. This is something that we're often not even that bold to admit to people. If you want to be a slave to sin, that's fine. Then you're free in regards to righteousness. You can do what you want. Now, we don't usually say that, right? Because we're usually like, no, 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 you can't, like, he says, you can do whatever what you want in regard to righteousness if you're a slave to sin. But then he asks this question, but what kind of fruit were you getting at that time? What was your life like when you lived as a slave to sin? Did you enjoy it? Was there lots of peace and harmony? Was there lots of patience and kindness and good, you know, the fruits of the Spirit? Did you have any of that in your life? Did you? I haven't given you a lot of chance for interaction. You're all just kind of staring and looking at me, but did you? When you were living a life enslaved to sin, what were the fruits of that life? Did, did you, was, it, was it an enjoyable life? Now you're saying, I'm not going to answer that because I did kind of enjoy it, right? I kind of liked it. But did you really? If you did, then why aren't you still doing it? Right? Why are you sitting here then? Well, maybe that's a whole different question, right? Maybe I opened a whole other can of wax, follow wax. What's that phrase? Anyway, I did something. Why are you sitting here? Why are you serving Jesus now? What were the results of your life back then? Did you like that? I didn't. I faced, I had incredible amounts of insecurity in my life. Incredible amounts of insecurity. You may not believe that. I did. I was, I was always up, up inside of here. It was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to work out, or this person doesn't like me, or that person... And it sounds bad when I say it this way now, but I don't, I don't always care as much when people don't like me. Because I have security inside of me. That's what Jesus did for me. He said, I, you belong to me. He gave me identity. I don't have to impress people. Now, you know me. It's still one of my struggles, right? I, 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 like to, I don't like people not being happy with me. But if you would know me back then to now, it's, it's changed. I, I would, anyway, it's okay if I don't always impress you. When I begin to think about it, I realize I don't have to. I have, to be, I have to be faithful to God. Anyway, you didn't want to answer the question, but I hope you're thinking it through. Did you enjoy the fruit of the life you were living? Well, let's keep going because we're going to be way past time here today. This brings us to a whole big discussion. This is like a, this is like a, this is a huge one. Because of greedy shepherds, because of biblical illiteracy, I think probably the largest section of wall, if you're going to put it down this way, the largest section of wall that is broken down, perhaps even missing in some places, in our church is that we have worldly Christians. We have Christians that look and act and think and behave and have attitudes and speak and do just like the world does. I don't know about you, and I'm about to help you understand this a little bit, but according to what I read in Scripture, that's not how it should be. That's not how it should be. There should be a distinction between the world and the church. In fact, I picked out some, I could have picked out I mean, I could, have, I could have sat up here all morning long, sat up here all morning long, and just read verses about this point. I mean, I, I had to pick and choose and throw these out, and I'll stay with this one. And, but, but I wanted to give us an idea of, A, 
what does the Bible have to say about the distinction between us and the world? And B, how should we interact with the world? What's, what, what, what is our, what is our, what's our role that we're playing then with how God sees us in the world? So let's begin. Uh, you have them in your hand out there, so you're going to know where I'm going to head. But let's begin in, in uh, 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we kind of begin right off the bat, right? Like, what does God think about Christians and the world? What does he want us to think about that? Do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, by the way, if you're struggling with this, what the world is, the world is something that's ungodly, that's against God, that's not aiming to follow God at all, that has no interest in doing what God wants. Doesn't care, doesn't yield, doesn't submit, doesn't have anything to do with, with God. That's the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. James tells us this way. He says, you adulterous people, Interesting phraseology, right? Because it means to be committed to one thing or say you're committed, but then, uh, and then be unfaithful. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He goes on to say, if anyone would want to be a friend of the world, he makes himself an enemy of God. We're getting a pretty clear idea, right, what God thinks about this? Don't love the world. You're an adulterous person if your friendship with the world, if you're trying to be friends with the world and also trying to be friends with God. In fact, he says it's not possible. You make yourself an enemy of God. Let's keep going. In Matthew 5, 14 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, you notice there's a subtle shift here now. It's no longer just about how God thinks about the distinction between the two, but what kind of role we should play. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, take just, just humor me for a little bit, okay? Uh, put your thinking caps on. Don't, don't, like, don't be afraid to, to apply a little bit of mental energy here. Let's think of some things that's necessarily implied by Jesus saying, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So if I were to ask, for example, um, when is light most evident? What's that? When there's darkness, right? So there's, immediately we understand there's, there's some kind of implication about light and darkness, right? That like there's a difference. So if we're supposed to be the light of the world, what does that mean? What does that infer? What does that imply? I should say imply. You should infer. What does that mean? It means the Christian is to be light and the world is darkness, right? Do you follow that? If the rest of the world is, or if the Christian is just like the rest of the world, how will you see light? If the light is darkness, these are Jesus' own words, my paraphrase, but if the light is darkness, then how can it be distinguished from the darkness? Do you see what I'm driving at? When Jesus makes a statement, he makes it clear that there is a distinction. There's a difference in identity between the believer and the world. And in fact, the believer is to be a light to the dark world. Now, Again, I hope you're already doing this, but take a look at your own personal life. Take a look at your family. Take a look at Riverview. Take a look at the broader church and see, is this in any way, shape, or form true? Is there a distinction? Is there something about me that allows me to be light in darkness? Or is there no difference? 
I'm going to get to a few specifics in a bit, but let me, let me read a couple more verses. In the book of Philippians, when Paul writes to the Philippians, I'm going to read this for you because I'm going to read more than I have up on the screen. He writes this in chapter 2 of Philippians, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. By the way, there's a distinction made between light and darkness, right? Like darkness grumbles and disputes, light doesn't. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We again have some similar kinds of phrasing, right? Not only is it clear from God's word that you and I are supposed to be different from the world in some ways, like we're supposed to be distinct from them, there's some kind of identity that sets us apart from them, but there's a relationship we have with them. We are supposed to be lights among the darkness there, and here it gives us a clue, right? We're holding out the word of life. This is why we have to have uh, biblical literacy, why we have to know what the Bible says. We can't hold out the word of life if we don't know it, right? Maybe partly why we are not so full of light, because we don't know it. Let me read one more passage before I get to a few specific things here. John chapter 17. It's Jesus' prayer. If your Bible probably has it labeled as the high priestly prayer. It's before, right before he goes to the cross. He's praying for his disciples, but he makes it clear in the prayer that he's also praying for any one of us who follow Jesus after he's gone. So it's not just the disciples, but for us too. I'm going to start reading John 17, verse 13. Now he's talking to God. But now I am coming to you. Jesus saying, I'm coming to you, God. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, the disciples, we, us, that they may ha have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, there's a lot of things there. There's a lot of things we could pick out on. But I, wanna, I wanted to go to this passage. This is probably the second passage that I thought of. The first one was Ezekiel when I started studying. That was the first passage I thought of this week. The second was probably this passage right here. Because it paints for me a picture of the sheep pen. The walls that are there and the gates that are there. Remember, we're talking about Jerusalem here in Nehemiah, or a sheep, and they may only have one gate, but there's this idea that there's a wall and there are gates. What's the purpose of a gate? We didn't really talk about that very much last week, but what's the purpose of a gate? You can answer that since you're, you know, here listening, hopefully. What's the purpose of a gate? To go in and out, exactly, right? So it's, it would be wrong of us to say, well, if I want to be faithful to God, I'm going to make a wall around myself, and I think I said this last week, I'm going to make a wall around myself and just stay right where I'm at and protect myself from everything, restrict myself from everything, and have identity that I'm supposed to have, and we're good to go. But that's not the picture we see, is it? In fact, in Jesus' words right here, that's not the picture we see. He says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. That would be making a gate or making a wall and saying we're totally separate. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but I'm sending them into the world just like you sent me into the world. That to me speaks of gates. That to me speaks of the identity we have, but the, 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 the travel we have out from where we're at back and forth with the world around us. Again, you cannot really be an effective light for the world or hold out the word of life to them when you are sequestered away and... Uh, not even evident or not even, not even visible or not even 
Like, and, and, and this is a tough one for me. I'm going to be very honest. This is a tough one for me to figure out as a parent. Because I, you know, I'm assuming you know this, like I want to do everything I can to keep my kids in the biggest bubble ever and not let them out, ever. But I know that doesn't really work, right? It's not really how, it, it's not, not how it works. So I got to figure out how to build walls and have gates that are not burned that I can do what I should be doing. And I definitely, I definitely don't think that we have that figured out. <laughs> And I think it's hard when as a church we may not have it figured out well to do it as a family. And it works kind of both ways, right? Like if you don't have, they work both ways. Clearly I said this before, you can't have, you can't, you can't pretend to have a godly church when you don't have godly families that make up that church. So at this particular, this particular point especially that I'm making, I felt it was necessary. This is a really broad, this is a really broad like point, right? Like to say we have worldly Christians is about, I mean, it doesn't, well, what it does, I'll be honest, what it does is it allows lots of you to sit here and say, yeah, we have worldly Christians, it's a very bad thing, and not take any amount of time to reflect on your own life and say, am I one? Because it's really easy to point the ways that other people are and say, well, that's obviously a worldly Christian right there, and that's not me, I don't do that, so I'm good to go, right? And that would defeat the entire purpose of the message, so I picked a few. Now, this, again, is not, a, this is not an exhaustive list. Please understand. There's lots of other ones that could be brought up. And, uh, but I picked a few things that I, I want to just specifically bring to your attention and say, these are ways that I think uh, we have allowed too much of the world to get into us. Some of these you might like. Some of these you might not like. Maybe you won't like any of them. I don't know. Consumerism. You know what consumerism is? To consume something is... Well, you know, to consume something is because consumerism is the buying and accumulating of things and using them in all kinds of things. I think there's a particular uh, uh, drift that we've had in the church of Jesus Christ and makes us look like the world in that we are focused on our possessions and what we have and how much of we have it and how nice of things we have and all kinds of We want to consume just like the rest of the world. True? Not true. This would be a fun little game to play if I do this every time. Fun for me, maybe not for you. True, not true. Is that true? I think we look a lot more like America and the American dream than we look like the church of Jesus Christ in this regard. I think we are indicted by the world when we pretend to say we should live in humility and we should, we should care about others, we should take care of other people's needs, we sh we sh and Hear me carefully. We're going to hit, skip to this one a little bit. But And when we rail against the fact that our government hands out all kinds of money and then we live in really nice big homes and have lots of stuff and we don't care one bit about the poor person on the street corner. I would say that tends to hinder our light just a little bit because we're a little too consumeristic. We're a little too interested in getting what we want for ourselves. Let's see what other goody stuff. Kind of related to this one, but I, this is a particular one that I think... Uh, we need to pay attention to you. I think we look a lot like the world in the way we use technology. I'm not saying technology is bad. I, for one, would think my life, and maybe this is wrong to say this, but I think there's some unavoidable things, places where I need to use technology. But I think in general, when 
we look at how we use technology, how we rely on technology, how we need the latest and the greatest and the next thing and everything else that kind of ties to consumerism, but it's not entirely the same thing because I think there's something far more sinister about what's happening with technology. Far more, uh, we'll get to some of this stuff down the road a little bit, but we're kind of, I, there's no way I can pull a thread out without unraveling the whole ball. Far more uh, okay with having uh, electronic communication with people instead of face-to-face -face communication with people or far more impersonal kinds of interactions, far more dangerous things. Boy, if you just want to go, I mean, I could spend half an hour talking about this. If you just want to go and talk about a chink in the wall when there's, uh, where we're not like protecting ourselves is to, is to look at the devices we have in our hands in our homes all the time. Now, I could say, and it's true, I could say, is it really, is it really the place we want to be as families, as parents, to give our children basically unlimited access to, like, anything they want in the palm of their hand at any time? I could say that, and it would be true, but I would further up that a little bit and say, is that really good for us as adults? I think... As you unveil this one, there's a whole lot of things that are broken out of our walls in what we do with technology. Let me keep going because there's going to be a lot of these that kind of weave together. I like the phrase, I was having a conversation with one of you, to remain unnamed this morning. I was having a conversation with one of you this week, and they used this phrase, and I loved it. They said, we're talking about you know, broken down walls, things at the church, and they said, we bought what America sold. We bought what America sold. And on one front, I see it no clearer than on the front of individualism, that we have bought this idea that it is my body, my time, my this, my that, and you can't tell me how to use it, what to do with it, or anything like that. And I know, again, we rail against things like abortion, which uses that tagline. We rail against that and the other, and we refuse to look in the mirror and say, do I not think of myself in the same way? Do I not think that my time is mine, and my money is mine, and my stuff I have is mine, and what I want to do with is mine, and how I interpret this, how, how I think of this is mine, and I can have it. You can have yours, that's fine, go your way, but I'll have mine. And we have allowed ourselves to be okay with that, which is what allows us to be completely scattered and impersonal. Again, you see these things all kind of weaving together. These are what I would call the broken down wall of worldly Christians that look just like the rest of the world. That say, you can't tell me what to do. It's my right. It's my whatever. You can't tell me what to do. And I tell you, those words should not ever come out of a believer's mouth. Nor should they think it. That's a strong statement. Perhaps you disagree with me. I would counsel us to have a good understanding of the word of God. We're going to get to a few things yet today. A good understanding of the word of God to see whether this be true or not. Ooh. Why did I put this one up there? I think in many ways we have become far too political as a church. We've become far too invested in the political process. Now, this is, I, I look at a lot of these. I was going to make this to the end, maybe, but I look at a lot of these, and I see them as gates. 
Because there's a lot of these that we have to have some, like there's in and out, right? Like we have, we have to buy things, right? We have to live. We, have, we, we use technology. We have to have. We, we are individuals. We do have our own choices, right? Politics is one of those. Give to Caesar to Caesar's. I think it's okay for us to engage in the, in the process of voting and, and doing our civic duty. That's, that's where I'm at personally. What I'm not okay with is what I sense is happening is a shift in the church to say that we will fight. Uh, again, I had a friend, not from the church here, but I had a friend that I was having a conversation with, and he used this word. We will fight for conservatism a lot harder than we sometimes will fight for Christianity. And those are not the same. Don't, let's not mistake them. It is not our goal to have a conservative nation. That's not what saves us. That's not what, 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 now please understand, I am very, very grateful for the country I live in. And I give it a pretty high degree of allegiance, just not the top allegiance in my life. And I ought not, and you ought not either. I really appreciate we can gather like this. I really am not looking to be in countries uh, like they are around the world where there's danger in meeting or they're not even able to meet like this. I, I'm really not looking for that. I'm really not saying, hey, let's get to that place. I'm really not saying, hey, let's throw everything out. I am saying if we think the only way we can be Christian is if we have a conservative president who enables conservative uh, policies and lets us do what we want in our conservative lives, then we have missed the boat of Christianity. I submit to you the church is going a lot faster in places that don't look anything like this than it is here. And I don't know all the reasons why, but among those is they don't have a single thought about how, whether they're going to change the political landscape of the country they're in. It's not even on the radar. We have given far too much of our energy and time to trying to make the right political stuff happen. And I think it's time we say this is a wall that's broken down and has got to be rebuilt. We live with a, what we call a dual kingdom theology and I think we've kind of allowed those things to be merged together a bit. And this is tough. Maybe lots of you have questions. What does this look like? What am I doing this? Is this right? I don't know if I know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. Oh, man, then I did another. Man, this, this gets worse. Though we are firmly against that, I bet every single one of us here today is firmly against the word I just put up here. In my estimation, we have allowed far too much uh, in the business world when you're working with technology projects, it's called scope creep. Scope creep means you start off with this objective and suddenly when you're done, you have, you're doing something that's like this because the scope just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I feel like we have far too much creep in this area and we are not aware of it. I may not be making friends today with this statement, but I suspect if you take a Real look around our families, there are far too many of them, again, I'm going to borrow a, a little lingo here, there are far too many of them where the woman wears the pants in the family. Lest females here think I'm being really harsh, I would want to be quick to say the primary responsibility there is with the male, not the female. The primary uh, uh, responsibility for this is with the male, not the female. I think this is probably one of those places that's very comfortable for us to look at even the broader church and say, oh yeah, that's really, really bad, a problem. And I would caution us 
to not stray too far away and say, can we just be content today to look at our own lives and our own situation, our own church, our own families, and make sure that we're doing things, again, as the Bible would say. I don't want to spend too much time with this. I want to say this yet with this one. I think in many ways we have become idolatrous. We have made idols of people and things just like the world does. Again, I'm probably not making a whole lot of friends with you today. I'm sorry about that. But if you and I know a whole lot more about our favorite sports team than we do about the Bible, this is a big problem. If you and I know more about what the actors in Hollywood and actors in Hollywood have to say about a situation than what God has to say about it, this is a really big problem. If we can tell you more about what's in the latest movies than what the Bible says or what happened in church last week or what the latest sermon you heard that was really good, there are still a few out there available. This is a really big problem. When we lift up and elevate people's opinions, and I could maybe even include other people in religion, other preachers, if we lift up their opinions above what the Word of God says, we have a really big problem. That's called idolatry. It's the chief foremost thing that God warns us against. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I'm afraid that when we look at the church, we have hugely lost our identity because we have the same heroes, we have the same people we're following on Instagram, we have the same stories we know all about, we have the same sports teams we're all interested in, we have the same passions of the world, we have the same things we, we make time for in our lives as the whole rest of the world. I don't think it should be like that. I don't think that's what God wants. I want to focus in on one key thing that comes kind of out of worldly Christians, out of a lot of things we talked about, but I think it's a really important point uh, to make. I have to move this along. I'm going to ask, have to ask for your grace already in just being patient with me today. I think one very, very big place that the church has a broken down wall is in the area of community. We have lost what I think is one of the defining things about the body of Christ is that we see ourselves as a community. We see ourselves as part of the same body. This is not a mindset the world has, by the way. The world says I'm my own person or my family, my, my bloodlines are the most important or my turf here or my business or whatever it might be is the most important. We say that of people of faith, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we are brothers and sisters, that we are part of the same body and we will be a community. We will show that. We will demonstrate that by being a community with each other. And I think we have lost a lot of that. And again, this point is particularly sore when I think for people from our cultural background because it is the one thing that we have nailed over the last several hundred years that has distinguished us from the rest of the world that we are losing, that we are walking away from, that we are saying it's not for us. And again, I, I want to be... I wanna be I want to be clear, uh, some of this is broader church, some of this is Riverview. I, I, I don't know how to say this, it's going to come out as a negative thing when I don't know if it necessarily is, but I, we are very scattered, right? We live geographically very scattered. It's hard to be community when we're geographically scattered. It really is. I can tell you 
you know that we've had people that have come to the church that have come out of the Amish. I can tell you over and over and over again the thing I hear that they miss the most about their church that they left is community, is living together, is being with the people that they go to church with and brushing shoulders with them throughout the week and having contact with them. They're missing that. And I look and I say, that's right. We, we are not very good at that. When you read in the book of Acts, I'm going to go to these verses. When you read in the book of Acts, uh, verses 42 to 47, it says, and this is right when the church is established, the Holy Spirit just came. There were, they, they were several thousand people at that point already. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What we see in there, what we like to get away from as much as we can because it, because it indicts us, we see a community of people. You're talking several thousand people, so don't give me the garbage that says, well, there's so many of them, so they couldn't be a community. I don't care. What you see is a community of people, several thousand big, that was the body of Christ. And I think we have largely walked away and said, I want to be individual. I want to do what I want to do. I want to consume what I want to consume. I want to live my life. I want to have my passions. I want to do my things. I want to be worldly. I want to whatever. I want to, I want to look for the teacher I want to hear. All those things. And we have forgotten that we go to church with people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to care for them. And they are to care for us. It's a two-way street, by the way. Some of you are those who would love to help others, and some of you are those uh, who will never receive help from someone because it's a matter of pride. Just a couple of days ago on Wednesday, Ernie had a neighbor, Kermit Murray had a neighbor, and his calf barn burnt down. I don't know how big it was. How many calves were in there, Ernie? 270 calves. Big barn, total loss. Now, I realized, well, let me just finish my statement. I talked to Kermit last night, and he said, yeah, they had everything cleaned up, and they were there laying block today for his new building. Three days hence. Now, I'm, I'm not about making comparisons about good, bad, this church is good, this, I mean, whatever. But I want us to understand that there's a principle of community that people there have got in their head that we don't have. Now, I know there's other things, like, you can make some excuses. Excuses, right? Like, well, insurance, blah, 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 all this other stuff. I submit to you, I challenge you, think carefully. If there were no other factors at play, nothing else hindering us, how many of us believe that if one of us had a building of that size, that that kind of devastating thing happened, that three days later, there would have been a big chunk of us there that would have said, hey, we're going to help you rebuild this thing. We're going to take time out of our day. We're going to move our schedule. We had these plans on Saturday, but we're going to do something else now because you have need and I can help you. I think we have a big hole in our wall. Now, friends, I'm so sorry because the time has gone on, and we're only, that's only the first half of the message. Well, it's not quite half, so. You're all nervously laughing because you're thinking what I said might just be true. No, I did want, I really want to have two parts of this sermon because up to this point, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but I know how I was feeling when I got to making this message. And I thought, 
I want to cry. Maybe I should cry. But I also want to, we're going to be moving through this book of Nehemiah, and I want to give a beginning glimpse. There's a whole lot of pieces that aren't going to be here, but a beginning glimpse to what I think, and not just my own thoughts, but what there's some leadership team here, some people here at church that, that we think is going to be some things that we need to talk about as to how to rebuild this wall. Now, I can largely summarize what we just went through and to say that we have forgotten, I think we have forgotten two big critical things. What I would say are the two most important things that are listed in Scripture. Let me just put those up here. The first thing we have forgotten is we've forgotten to be who Jesus commanded. I hope you can read that. We've forgotten to be who Jesus commanded. The second thing is we've forgotten to do what Jesus commanded. I have two, two distinctions there. We've forgotten to be what Jesus commanded. We've forgotten to do what Jesus commanded. If we would remember these two things, I don't think that we'd have these holes in our walls. I don't think we'd have these broken down walls and burned up gates. Because those things would take care of us. Now, specifically, you might be thinking, what am I talking about? Specifically, I'm talking about that first one, to be who Jesus commanded is what Scripture calls the greatest commandment. You know what that is, right? Yes. You should love God and you should love others. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. Upon all, on these two, the two things, to love God and love others. Upon all these two, everything else hangs that you and I have to do. Every other wall we have to build, every other thing we have to do hangs on those two things. And I would tell you, friends, you cannot pretend to love God and never spend time with him. You cannot pretend to love God and never read his word. You cannot pretend to love God and not ever pray. It just will not work. It's not true. Try that, by the way. Husbands, try that with your wife. Tell her every day you love her, but ignore her completely and never spend time with her, never talk to her, never find out what she wants. Do you think she'll be convinced that you love her? No, she probably will say you obviously say you love me, but you're a big hypocrite and you hate me. The same is true for our Heavenly Father. We have forgotten to be who God commanded us to be, which is to be people of love, to love Him with all that we have and to love each other. And to do what Jesus commanded, of course, refers to the other uh, big thing in Scripture, which is what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 8, uh, Matthew 8, Matthew 18. Is that even right? Thank you, man. I got to keep going by tens. Man, oh man, it's really getting late. Matthew 28, he said you should go into all the world and make disciples and to teach them. You should baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you should teach them to obey all I have commanded them. This is what we are to do. Brothers and sisters, people in the church, we have forgotten these two most critical basic priorities that we have. To be people of love and to do what God asked us to do, which is to make disciples and to teach them to obey. That first part, by the way, is the broadening out, is the multiplying, if you want to use that word. The second part is the maturing part, to make, help them obey what God taught them to do. That's what we're all supposed to be doing. We're all supposed to be going in maturity. This is the overarching goal. If I could tell you what my vision would be for us as a church, you know this because, at least right now, because it's, it's the theme for this year, is to go back to the basics. And this is what this is, to go back to putting the kingdom of God as our first priority and being right with him. If I could tell you my heart for all of you is that I would love to see each of you be a conduit, not a cistern, but a conduit through which the Holy Spirit can flow and impact other people. Because when that happens, not only will people be blessed and people be brought in the kingdom, but you yourself will be matured. Because as you should know, when you use your gifts, when the Holy Spirit works through you, that's when you grow. Not when other people use their gifts on you. You grow when you are using your gifts. That's how it works. You will mature as the Holy Spirit works through you. That's my vision, my desire for you. How do we get there? I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers. Obviously, but we'd already be there, right? But 
I think there's a couple of key components. I want to go back to this verse in Acts chapter 2 that I've jumped over. Acts chapter 2 verse 46 is a verse that has been taking on a new importance to me over the last couple of years. Actually, I read this a couple of, well, probably when we went through the book of Acts, which is several years ago by now. And it's been growing and growing and growing in my head. But there's something in here that I'm like, there's, there's a key in here. It says that day by day, this is what the early church did, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they had favor with God and with man, and God added to their number every day. We're not getting the last part, right? We're not getting God adding to a number day by day, so we're missing some other parts, I submit to you. That's what this whole message is about. I think we see a bit of a, a key in the fact that as you read about several thousand people, and day by day, they were attending the temple together, that's a unified, that's a central place, right? They were going to the temple together. But look what else they were doing. They were breaking bread in their homes. Unless they had some people with really big mansions, I don't think that was the entire church that was gathering in their home to break bread. Do you think it was? You see, we have largely, we have largely opted to take, again, one of two options. We have either said, hey, let's have church like we think church should be, let's have a building, let's make everybody come there, and they come to church, and, and they have worship service, they have all kinds of good stuff happening, I hope, happening there, and we have church going on, and then we've had the other side, we've had these people that we see sometimes as kind of rebels, kind of free-thinking spirits, or they're kind of weird, they don't always, they, I don't know, they just don't like to submit to people, so they do a thing called house church, right? They go somewhere, and they meet us with just in their house, and we all kind of think, ah, there's, maybe not all of us think that, because some of you here have been part of house churches, so probably you don't think that, but you know, Let's be honest, some of the rest of us sometimes, we've, we've allowed it to be pushed that way. We've said it's an either or. We've said you either go to church like normal or you are this, you know, person over here that has a house church where you get together in a home and do stuff together as a small group. And I'm telling you in this verse, I see that it's not an either or, is it? It's an, it's an and. It's a both and. They're doing both. If I could tell you my heart and this is something I've been talking with our leadership team about. I've been talking with uh, some of our care group leaders about now. But if I could tell you my heart, it would be that that's the picture we would see emerge for this church here at Riverview. Is that we would have large group gatherings like we are this morning. Where the word of God is taught unashamedly, boldly, truthfully, correctly. Where we worship together. Like, like we, we understand what corporate worship, the benefit of corporate worship, of, of giving ties together. Of spending time with each other. Of being all together in one place. We need that. We need it desperately. We shouldn't stop doing that. We should do it more. But a piece I think we have been missing is some of the weaknesses I'm seeing in this kind of gathering. And you may say, what, do you what are you talking about, Merlin? Like, you're a preacher. You love this. And I do. Trust me. I, this, is what, this is what I love doing more than about anything else in the entire world. Probably more than anything else in the entire world. But there's some weaknesses, aren't there? I'm suspecting that there are times when you hear what I hope is a good sermon from up here. And you say, wow, that was really good. That was really powerful. And you go home, and by midweek, where's that, where's, where's the, where's that, that sermon you had listened to? Where's, the, where's that change you had thought? This would be a really good thing. Where's that at? Gone by the wayside, right? I'm further knowing and guessing, not just guessing, I'm knowing that there's lots of times where I can say something that's very convicting and in a big group of this, I mean, not a huge group, but in a group of this size, there's plenty of you that can sit out there and can uh, sort of let it go around each of your side and say, well, it's for that person, it's for that person, and never be forced to talk about yourself. And I can't force that to happen anyway. It's the Holy Spirit's work. But in a group of this size, it lends to anonymity. It lends to you being able to come in the back and sit there and slip out the back and no one talks to you. No one knows you were here. 
I submit to you, that's not what church should look like. That's not what the, what the life of a Christian should look like. So on top of large group gatherings, what I would love to see, what my heart is for the body here, is that each of us are part of a small group of people that meets sometime in between Sunday mornings and does the hard, hard work of applying what the Bible teaches into our daily lives, which is much more effective in a small group than it is here. Holding each other accountable, being vulnerable with each other, living life with each other. It's one of the reasons, and I know I, didn't, I, know I had some people that didn't like me for this, but it's one of the reasons that I kept saying, I think when we do care groups, it should be with people that live geographically close to you. I know you can travel and you can do all kinds of stuff, but I think you should do it with people that live close to you because I want you to see each other during the week. I want you to rub shoulders. I want that, that day when you're frustrated and you're mad at something that didn't work the way you did and you're about to lose your temper, I want that person to drive past and see you and say, hey, I'm going to stop in and talk to them today. And frankly, it doesn't happen for most of us, right? Because we don't even live close to each other. I'm coming to believe that the work of applying what the Bible teaches happens much more readily in a smaller group setting and not here on Sunday mornings. Now, I, the Holy Spirit does all kinds of great things, and I, 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 he does it here on Sunday mornings. It's not, my, it's not my call or not my call. I mean, it's not my, me to make happen or not make happen. But I've seen in my own life, I've seen in the life of people who've talked to, we've been doing care groups now for about a year, that there's some things that happen at that level. There's a, a lot more people that are using their gifts, by the way, on that level than they are here on Sunday morning. Anyway. I've gone way past time. I don't, want to, I don't want to belabor that point. I do think it's one of the ways that we are, if we're going to rebuild these walls, fill in those holes I talked about this morning, restore those gates, I think it's going to require a willingness to walk in vulnerability, in honesty with each other, a lot closer with each other, in a lot more community with each other than what we're doing right now. Otherwise, I'm just up here railing about the stuff that isn't good in the church and nothing's going to change. I'll be willing about it next year too, and the year after that, and the year after that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your heart, your word. There's, a, just, a, there's just a giant possibility, God, that there's something that came out of my mouth that wasn't, wasn't uh, exactly right or maybe was misunderstood or maybe didn't come out exactly like I wanted it to. And I take responsibility for that, Father, and I ask you to correct it or to strike it from our record or whatever, our minds or whatever it may be. But there's things that were from you, Father, I pray that you would press them in and hold them. I pray that you'd keep us in a place where we are continually talking and thinking about this and uh, willing to wrestle with it and not take it the easy way out and say it's for someone else. And I'm so grateful for your grace in our lives because it's that which enables us to actually uh, let you, the light of the world, Jesus, shine upon us. And then when that happens, we can then become lights that shine. And we want that to be true. There's so much more that's there, Father. And so we want to allow your word to continue speaking to us, allow your Holy Spirit to continue moving us. And we're so grateful and thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning? Again.